Welcome to Try Babies, the podcast where we're not afraid to be seen trying and crying. You're joined by Sunroom co-founders Michelle Battersby, that's me, and Lucy Mort, that's me. We help build the world's largest dating apps, Bumble and Hinge. Now we're in the thick of building our own tech company and we're bringing you along for the wild ride. Each week you'll hear from us as we fill you in on the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to business, career, relationships and everything in between. We'll tackle burning audience questions and be joined by inspiring creators, female business leaders and the people who have motivated and energised us along the way. These won't be your typical shiny business stories. We want to showcase the experiences that go unsaid and definitely chat about the moments that don't make it onto Instagram. Prepare to hear about the lows, the failures, the doubt and the downright nightmare days. Navigating life through your 20s and 30s can be hard, which is why we're so passionate about creating a space for you to come to on the days you need to feel seen, inspired, educated, supported, and sometimes shocked into action. This is honestly the podcast we both needed throughout our journeys. Victoria Devine is the founder and host of She's on the Money, Australia's number one business podcast. She's a financial advisor, entrepreneur, and also an expecting mum. Today, we discuss the many confronting themes around finances, how you could approach getting yourself out of debt, and how you can arm yourself best for wealth and financial abundance. Let's do it. So for those people out there who don't know about your work, could you give us a quick recap? Um. Yes. I always feel so uncomfortable doing this. Um, so let's go, for let's it. go all the way back to the beginning. I grew up thinking I want to be a doctor. And then when it came time to do your year 12 selections, turns out I didn't have the score to be a doctor. So I thought, you know what, next best thing, I'm going to become a psychologist. So decided to go down that route, did my degree, realized halfway through the degree that this was not for me and pivoted and went into a stream called organizational psychology which is essentially the science of people at work. So I was doing a lot of culture, Mm. a lot of engagement, adored it. But culture and engagement, as you probably know, Michelle, is really hard to measure. Like you can talk about it. It can be fluff. It's really important. But when you work in the space and you're trying to prove to people what you've done, that measurement factor was really missing for me. And if you know me in any stretch of I guess any realm, I'm really analytical. Like I love data. I love math. I love being able to prove myself, but also prove things to other people. And so at the same time, I was getting myself into bucket loads of debt because I was so good at keeping up with the Joneses. Like I'd just gotten my first consulting job. Michelle, like I got to wear pencil skirts. I was going to (laughs) buy so many of them. Um, Scamlin and Theodore. (laughs) I kept them in business for a good couple of years. Like, and now I have all these beautiful navy blue suits that I'm not willing to part with, but also I'm never going to wear them again. Where am I going to wear them? Like I turned up to this interview in a Lululemon hoodie and no makeup. Like we can't win. (laughs) This makes me feel like less of a lunatic because it's reminding me of myself. Like I got my first banking job and every single paycheck, I was straight into Scanlon and Theodore. The amount of those crepe, crepe crepe pencil. Yes. We need the crepe. Oh my gosh, it came in the tulip bottom. I better get that too. Yes, yes. Honestly, I think we have half of the same things, but please, okay, keep going. (laughs) Yeah, so relatable, but... I mean, a $600 suit is not that feasible for someone on a $45,000 income. Try Mm -hmm. telling me at the time I had to learn from my own mistakes. And so got myself into a little bit of a financial pickle and from there decided probably should learn a little bit more, probably should learn a little bit more about what money does, how it works. Because in my naive mind, when I was 21, 22, 
once you've got your first corporate job, like you were set financially, surely once you get to 40 in corporate, like you definitely have a house with a pool and two Audis out the front, right? Like that's just how it works. Mm. Turns out that's not how it works. And the entire world had at that point been falsified to me. And those things were bought on debt. And yeah, I just felt like, wow, if, you know, Colin from accounts can't do it, how am I going to do it? Maybe I need to start young. So I started exploring it and I guess to cut a really long story short, discovered, I guess, financial literacy for myself. But I think it's really important to point out here that I had a really good level of financial literacy. I just didn't listen to it. I grew up with a dad who was an accountant. My parents owned businesses as I was growing up. Like I had access to these things. Did I listen though? Absolutely not. Because what do parents know, Michelle? Nothing. Mm. So I didn't want to listen to them. I didn't take any of their advice. And I think I had to learn from my own mistakes, which I definitely have now, thankfully. And yeah, fell in love with, I guess, financial literacy and realized, oh my gosh, do you know about super? That's wild. Why aren't more people talking about this? Like what's Mm. going on? I would rant and rave at my brunches with my girlfriends about like the importance of super and savings and what these things looked like. And ultimately decided from there, I probably should go into financial advice because I wasn't really enjoying this culture and engagement space, but I was really enjoying the space of financial literacy. Like it just felt so empowering, not just for me because I was getting myself out of that pickle, but oh my gosh, the power and the ability to measure The ability Mm. that I could say, hey, Michelle, this year you're here and if you take these steps, you will be in this other position and I can show you that, to me, was really cool. So Mm. ultimately became a financial advisor. Again, cutting another long story short, started my own practice, which I had for five years before selling it in September 2022. I now own a mortgage broking company called Zella Money with a business partner, Kate Bransgrove, who is an absolute legend. And we've got just over 30 staff in that. And from my passion in, I guess, financial literacy, She's on the Money was born. And it was born as a Facebook group because I had friends that were sick of me talking drivel at brunch. And so I thought, I'll put it in one place on the internet. And that grew. And then I started a podcast and I guess the rest is history. We now have what 500 plus episodes and 1.6 million listeners each and every single month. And I don't really know what I'm doing still. (laughs) Oh, I mean, your story is just incredible. And there are so many little tunnels I want to go down with this. First thing, are you comfortable like sharing what was that pickle you were in? How much debt had you got yourself in? Oh, $43,000 on a personal loan. I didn't even go credit card route. I just went real hard, went to the bank and said, I need this amount of money. I had decided I wanted to buy a Mercedes because Mm. obviously I worked in consulting. The Scanlon Theodore suits could not be seen getting out of my Toyota Avalon. That wasn't going to happen. So I needed a new car. I also at the time was doing my MBA while working full-time and I had been extended the opportunity to study in France for a couple of months. Mm. Um, So I went down to Grenoble, which was incredible, and I studied at their school of management and that was amazing, but, like, I didn't have the cash for that at all. So I needed to, I guess, borrow money to be able to go and do that. I put the, like, study expenses on Hex, but there was still, like, the living 
costs and getting there. And obviously the second you're in France, you're like, well, obviously I can go to Italy for the weekend and wanted to have the best time ever. So Mm. it all just compounded from there. I mean, I did have a small amount of credit card debt, which I consolidated into that. But like, I mean, that was probably like $2,000 maybe. But yeah, it all just kind of came from a position where I didn't really understand debt. And at the time, Mm. I think I dropped it before, but like my graduate role, when I first started, I went straight into a consulting position. I was an associate consultant and I was on $45,000 plus super. And like, I nearly had exactly the same amount worth of debt. And somehow when I was signing up for that, that wasn't scary. I was like, whatever, like people do this all the time, right? Mm. Did you Um, have that mindset of like, I'll be able, like my career will keep growing, you know, I'll make more next year? Like, Yeah, 100%. Like you can always deal with it later, right? Like debt's not that bad, especially when you're getting into it. You justify it to yourself in any which way. It wasn't until the reality of that circumstance, I guess, hit me. I think it didn't hit me immediately because, you know, I'd just been given this massive loan, which thankfully now after the Royal Commission isn't even possible to get anymore. And that's mm. probably now showing a bit of my age, which is fine. Um, <laughs> but you look at it and go, one, I can't believe someone let me get into that position. But two, I was living my best life during that period of time. The debt repayments weren't so bad when I still had a heap of the money sitting in my account. Mm. Um, but it was once I came home and went back to my share house. And I remember my share house cost me about $950 a month to live in. And that was like a pretty good share house. Like that was, you know, splitting it between three or four people. And that was reasonable. But I remember I used to stay up late at night because my debt repayments each month were $883. And on that income, I didn't have anything left. I didn't have anything left to save I didn't have anything left to enjoy life. Every time I made a decision to go out for brunch with my girlfriends, it would mean spending the money that I had aside for electricity or for my bills or, you know, we got through, but I just remember how stressful that was and how sick I would feel and how I couldn't sleep. And that was where I went, I can't do this. Like this anxious stress person is not worth it. And I guess to make it even worse, like I hadn't told anybody. So like nobody knew that I had this debt. My housemates didn't know that I had this debt. And I think just knowing how expensive it was Mm. and, you know, I felt like I was in a rock and a hard place and I was like, well, I have to get out of this. What am I going to do? So yeah, happy to always talk about that because I think sometimes you look at people, especially like me who in the media, like I try so hard, right? Like I have a beautiful platform with She's on the Money and like, holy moly, I'm a money columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Like I think if you haven't been part of my journey, you just assume I've always been good at money. And I think it's so important to acknowledge like, no, no, no. Like I know you because I am you. I'm not giving you financial advice because I think I'm better than you. I'm giving you financial advice because I don't want you to be in the same position that I was in. Mm. Yeah. You obviously you know, you pulled yourself out of that. But I can imagine so many people in debt, you do want to hide from it or you don't really want to recognize it. Or maybe you just don't even feel like you can pull yourself out of it. What would be your advice, like first step to someone who might be in a similar position? How can they begin to change their behaviors or help themselves? So it's really hard and I totally resonate with that because for a long time, I think if you'd asked me, well, how much debt are you in Victoria? I'd go, oh, I don't know. 
because I was too scared to look at my statements. I was, I knew how much was coming out every month because you can't really hide from your bank statements and, you know, the notification that would pop up to say, oh, this amount's been debited from your account. But I don't think I could tell you how much debt I was in because I was kind of in that circumstance where I was like, deny till I die. (laughs) Like Mm. if I don't admit to it, it doesn't impact me. It doesn't matter. Out of sight, Um, out of mind. Exactly. Out of sight, out of mind. And that's the worst position you could be in. Like knowing your numbers, knowing where you're standing, knowing what you owe is going to mean that you can make a plan to move forward. And for a really long time, I was in a position where I was just kind of at a gridlock. Like I was paying off my debt, but it was the minimum repayments. So I wasn't really moving forward and I wasn't really moving backwards, but I wasn't going anywhere. And that, that position feels like trash Mm. where you feel like, oh my gosh, all of my money, I'm not saving, I'm not investing. I'm not doing these things that my friends are doing. I think being able to reframe it and go, well, actually, how cool is this? I'm able to pay off my debt every single month. And the second this is gone, that can go into savings. Oh, actually that's pretty cool. How much could I get that to? I think being able to take it by, I guess, both horns and go, you know what, this is what it is. Let's not crucify ourselves for having the debt. Cause that doesn't help anybody. Right. Like I used to ruminate and be like, I've made so many bad decisions. This is so embarrassing. This is the worst thing ever, but like that doesn't help us in any way, shape or form. So let's cut that. Let's just go. I am where I am. And clearly there was a lesson I was meant to learn from this. I don't know what it is yet, but that doesn't matter. Let's make a plan for moving forward. I think reframing it and going, wow, how cool is it that I can pay that much debt off each week or month mm. to actually going, well, the second that's gone, how great are these savings habits that I have? Just because you're in debt doesn't mean you can't be powerful. And I think that that is something that we should all embrace and go, well, actually I can be powerful. I can change my life. I can do these things. And you just need a bit of a reframe and someone to kind of kick you up the butt and be like, actually, that's pretty cool. Like, yeah, you're paying off that debt, but like, imagine what life is going to be like once that's gone. You will feel lighter. Life will be easier, but also you have that savings capacity. Look what you could do with that. So instead of look what I'm missing, it's like, look what I'm building for myself. I love that. I think reframing it as you'll actually be setting up a new habit if you can, you know, get into this, grab the bull by the horns and start to chip away at that debt. That's an amazing piece of advice. I want to talk about She's on the Money because I feel like I remember when She's on the Money, the podcast launched and I felt like it was the first time someone was speaking about finance in a way that felt really relatable to young women, really palatable. And it was the first time I'd probably ever consumed finance content. Is that what you were trying to achieve? Accidentally. Yeah. I think, (laughs) I think I just thought it would be cool to have a resource because at the time I had this Facebook group and we would talk about financial literacy all the time. And I remember it got to 1,700 members in that Facebook group, Michelle. And I thought that was the most amount of people I had seen in my life. I remember (laughs) visualizing what that would look like in a room and being like, they wouldn't even fit in this room. Like, that's so awesome. And I posted in the Facebook group and I said, hey guys, like there's so many of you. I want to create a resource to empower you. Because at the time I was working as a financial advisor. And I mean, selfishly in in the background, I was like, how good is this? Because if I can share with these people that I am reliable when it comes to finances, some of them might become my clients. 
And out of 1,700 people, even if I, you know, converted 2 or 3%, that's a really good a good thing. So I was always trying to give more than I took from that community. But I said to them, what do you want? Like, how can I help you learn more? And they suggested YouTube videos. And I was like, absolutely not. We are not going to be doing video. (laughs) So the next step was kind of a podcast. And I thought I'm pretty comfortable with a podcast and organized for some other people to be involved because I had no idea how to start a podcast or what that would look like. So I put my money where my mouth is and, you know, paid for all of this production to be done. But in my head, all I needed to do was 12 episodes I'll just do 12 episodes because if I do those 12 episodes, that will be enough information for everybody to have that foundational level of financial literacy. And then wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I'll go back to being a financial advisor. And then if anyone ever asks questions, I'll send them to my insurance episode Mm. or I'll send them to my investment episode. And like, that's enough, right? Mm. Turns out it was not enough. That blew up. (laughs) I didn't see it coming. And yeah, I guess it just kept growing and we do definitely have more than 12 episodes now, <laughs> plus 500 at this point. And yeah, I think the podcast was literally born out of me going, oh, I can create this beautiful resource for women because it doesn't exist yet. I just thought it would be evergreen content that, you know, in a couple of years, you could still refer back to it because I'll tell you what the basics are. And a lot of the content on She's on the Money today is still evergreen. Mm. We do three episodes a week. We do a money diaries on a Monday, which is evergreen. You can listen to that whenever you want. And it's still relevant. We do a Wednesday deep dive, which sometimes is like evergreen. Sometimes it's not depending on what's going on. I've been talking a lot about interest rates recently, because obviously they're the bane of absolutely everybody's existence, but I think it's another evergreen episode. And now we do a Friday episode, which is more like a little bit spicy. Like I love solving people's money dilemmas and asking, Mm. you know, the community what their thoughts on things are and answering questions that the community are asking, but feel like other people aren't answering. So yeah, that's where we're at now. Your Facebook group is also, I would say it's like legendary, to be honest. I don't think I've ever (laughs) come across, seriously, I don't think I've ever come across a Facebook group with that many people in it. How many people do you have? It's tens of thousands, isn't it? Our Facebook page has 75,000 followers. Okay. And our Facebook group has 270,000 members. That is nuts. (laughs) I feel like now I think of it. I agree. And I think in today's world, not that many people are able to build and maintain a Facebook community like that. So I think it just shows how necessary. Oh, here you go. I'm, Here's the exact stats. There's 281,700 members in She's on the Money as of today. <laughs> that's crazy. How, how many people do you have moderating that? Uh, I have one full-time person. Oh my God. So it's a full-time job. Um, yeah. And the rest of the team definitely get involved. I I appreciate you seeing it in the same way that I do. Like to me, that's not a commercial space. And I mean, I should bring it over to Sunroom and make it a commercial space, hey. But I think it's to me really important that financial literacy is actually free. It's one of the reasons why mm. I haven't on our podcast gone with the subscription model, even though I see lots of other beautiful podcasters doing that in such a great way. I just go, there's something gatekeepy to me about mm. gatekeeping 
financial literacy because my my core belief is that that should be free and that should have been taught to you in school. So, you know, I'm not saying that in the future I won't do some kind of subscription service because I definitely think if we were talking about investment, well, that's actually the next level of, you know, financial literacy. I can teach you all the basics, but if we're going to deep dive into investment, I actually think that maybe that could be paid. So there's like lots Mm. of conversation, but in the She's on the Money Facebook group, It literally exists because I believe that women are capable, women are capable of achieving anything that they put their minds to. And it's not just about hard work, but it's also about having the right tools and the right resources and the right network behind you. And I think so many times we don't have that position or that place in the world where we can say, oh my God, I got a pay rise. I'm really proud of myself because it's not something that you talk about in your friends group, but that's what we talk about in She's on the Money. So Mm. we curate that group to the end of the earth, right? Like when I say we've got a manager, like a a full-time moderator in there, I I mean, every single post that you see in Facebook group has been approved. Like you can't just post in there and then someone will delete it. It needs to be an approved post. Mm. And so making sure that obviously we have enough posting coming in is really important, but then also making sure that all of the spam is kept out is also important. And in 2023, that's even harder than I thought it would be because like so many people join the group and you're like, that's a legitimate profile, no worries. And then they're Mm. like posting, oh my gosh, invest with me through this platform you just go, I trusted you, get out of here. (laughs) Um, It's definitely a place where we try to interact with our community in a really organic way. Like I'm in there all the time. I post every single week. Like, I want to know what are your money wins? What are your money confessions? Like, Mm. what are your questions this week? How do I, you know, how do we play money? Like, how Mm. do we talk about this? So it becomes less taboo. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like what you're doing, it does feel like that accessibility is really important, especially for the demographic that you're, I think, tailoring your your content for and really helping the most. You mentioned investing is the next level. And now I do want to ask you for some advice on investing for free, which might be a bit No, cheeky. no, no, go for it. <laughs> I love it. I wrote a whole book on investing. So it's literally my bread Amazing. and butter. It's actually my favorite part of finance. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So I'm curious also from a personal perspective, a little bit selfish, but what do you think is the minimum amount of money someone could be putting aside and investing in per month? And what should they be investing in? Like for someone maybe taking their first steps. So the minimum amount I would say is $1. Mm. And I say $1 because historically, I think there's this misconception that you need hundreds of thousands of dollars to start investing. Like a lot of people will say it's not worth it, right? Like V, why on earth would you say that I need to invest a dollar? Because, you know, if you jumped onto the MyGov website and worked out the investing compound, I guess interest paid on that, it's worth nothing, right? Like, let's be honest, you're investing a dollar a month. I'm so sorry to burst the bubble, but you're not going to retire comfortably with that. But you know what you are doing, Michelle? You're setting up this beautiful habit. You are investing in your financial literacy. If you have a dollar in the share market, what that's telling me is that you have access to the share trading platform. You understood how to buy the share that you wanted to buy or the ETF. You actually were able to facilitate that, which means as you grow, you can contribute more. So if we start at really small amounts and build up, it's less scary. Whereas if I said to you, Michelle, all right, well, 
the minimum investment amounts $5,000. You're going to go, well, that might be my, the entirety of my savings account. I don't feel mm. comfortable with that. So we're never going to make that leap into investing. You're never going to have that $5,000 invested because that's mm. terrifying. Like, let's be honest, everybody seems to have this preconceived idea that investing is like gambling. It is not. So you don't really want to pull the trigger on that because it feels irresponsible when in reality Mm. it's not. So you can download, there's lots of different platforms that now enable you to invest for as little as a dollar. I have been working recently with Sharesies, which is something that my community are obsessed with. And the reason I like that platform, it's not even a subtle plug. It's literally just one of those things where I'm like, the reason I like this is because you can buy fractions of shares. Mm -hmm. So instead of having to have, you know, these days a bank share could be 80 plus dollars. You can buy a dollar worth of that share. So you've got exposure to it. You see how it works. You're investing in your financial literacy. So when it comes to what you should be buying, well, that's a hard thing to answer. One, because I'm licensed and I'm not allowed to tell you, but two, because it's really different for everybody. So you and I might sit side by side and look the same and be about the same age and be in the same life stage, but Mm. you might be a little bit more tenacious than I am and you want to take on a more aggressive portfolio. And so you're willing to buy international shares, whereas I'm really conservative and I only want to buy Australian shares or keep my money in cash or bonds. So I think it's really important to understand, well, what kind of risk am I willing to take and what does that mean? And then from there go, all right, well, if I jumped onto a share trading platform, what do I want to buy? So let's say that you do want to invest in the share market. Let's pretend for a hot second that you're absolutely committed to that. Well, there's lots of ways to do that. Let's say you've got your investing platform. Are you going to buy direct shares or are you going to go buy something like an ETF? So an ETF is an exchange traded fund, which is basically a fancy term for a basket of shares that a fund manager has pre-selected. And that basket of shares is automatically diversified. So instead of you just going and buying one bank share or, you know, one tech share, you're buying this diversified basket of shares. And there's lots of different options. You could pick ethical options. You could pick an ETF that only invests in tech companies. You could buy an ETF that excludes all of these things that don't align with your values. Like it's 2023, the world is your oyster, but you might choose to have more diversification and it be a little bit more automated than you having to build and construct a well-diversified mm. portfolio on your own, which is terrifying. <laughs> like, yeah. let's be honest, that's kind of overwhelming. But for some people, that's where they get their kicks. Like mm. if you meet someone like me, I actually do own ETFs and they are my bread and butter of my account because I'm very much of the, I guess, belief that a good share portfolio can be very set and forget. Like it shouldn't be interesting. It shouldn't be that sexy. It shouldn't have that much drama in it. So I love my Mm. ETFs, but I don't think it will come as a surprise to anybody that I love the share market. I want to have a bit of a punt on different things. I want to buy different things. You know, if you were listing your company, Michelle, I'd be immediately interested. I'd be immediately interested in how that works because that's my passion. Mm. But if I sit down with you, you're going to be like, V, that's so boring. I absolutely don't want anything to do with that. So Mm. when it comes to what's the right thing to buy, there's no right thing. It's what is the right thing for me personally. And that's, I guess, where... I do a lot of work in this finance space and on my podcast to go, actually, this is how you would pick. If this mm. is your personality, maybe this is the the share yeah. portfolio that you might be more interested in. Or if, you, if you're passionate about property, maybe that's a better option than the share market because you can't convince somebody who adores property to save heaps of money to invest in the share market when all they want to do is own their first home. Mm. So like, 
How do I get you interested in creating wealth for future you? I don't care how that happens. All I want is for you to start prioritizing future you. And so let's work out what way is going to resonate with you most because I promise if you pick the way that resonates with you most, you're going to prioritize it and it's going to happen. I love that. Great segue that you brought up property because I think it's a hot topic for any young Australian, but anyone around the world, to be honest, comparing the housing prices from our parents' days. My parents actually recently pulled out the flyer for our family home. You know, it's bought for a couple of hundred thousand dollars in the 90s. Yeah. Wow. And I just think it does feel so out of reach for many, many people. Do you think owning a home is something people need to aspire to achieve? No. Let's contextualize it a little bit. I said early in this episode, I love stats. I love data. So here is a whole heap of it. That will make a lot of sense. So if we go all the way back to 1975, the average property cost someone in Australia between four to six times their annual income, right? And like you would look at it when your parents pulled that flyer out and you're like, oh my God, like, what do you mean it only cost, you know, $200,000 for this bomb house? Like it's amazing, right? So it cost between, you know, four and six times their annual income. And at that point in the time, that annual income meant that one of those parents in that relationship was a stay-at-home parent. So we're talking single incomes, not dual incomes. We are also Mm -hmm. looking at a parent that was able to financially support. It's like, I call it the Simpsons lifestyle because everybody knows the show The Simpsons. It makes sense. Marge is a stay-at-home mum. Homer, he just goes to work. He's a PAYG employee at a factory. He can afford that massive house and three kids and sometimes they go on holidays. I mean, their holidays (laughs) aren't that fancy, but they get in that orange car and they go places sometimes and it looks really fun and it reminds us of our own childhoods, right? Yeah. Let's fast forward to 2020. The average property price is 16 times an individual annual income. 16 We now can't afford to live in a world where property has increased in the same way. And if we look at it and go, oh, Victoria, because like every boomer wants to say, Victoria, well, times have changed and you guys get paid more now. And like, you know, interest rates were so high. Sit down, Sharon. Because if inflation without incomes had kept up in exactly the same way that it had with property, our average income would be $160,000 Australian each and every single year. But it's not because it hasn't kept up. The average income in Australia is $65,000. So it's now 16 times our annual income instead of four. We now need dual incomes to survive. And even a dual income doesn't mean we can afford a property because two times four is eight, not 16. So I look at it and I go, let's contextualize it a little bit because the world has changed significantly. So is it completely unobtainable? No, but it is going to cost you a lot more. So you're going to want to make sure that if property is in, you know, your line of sight, it is in line with your values. You are happy with the compromises that you are ultimately going to have to make for these properties because a mortgage is for 30 plus years. We're not Mm. looking at, oh, Michelle, you bought your first home. Congrats. What are you doing next year financially? Next year financially, you're paying off a mortgage. Yeah. So I think it's so important to look at it and go, is property a bad idea? No, of course it's not. You can still make money in property. You're not going to make money in property in the same way that historically we have over the last 50 years. Like I'm sure when you were looking at that pamphlet of your parents' house, you were like, oh my God, it's worth what now? 
Like Mm. that type of inflation is not going to happen again purely because our incomes aren't keeping up with it and it's already relatively unobtainable. Mm. However, if it is in line with your values, I think we need to reframe what that looks like and go, well, Michelle, you can't buy what your parents bought. Let's not Mm. look at that that way. Maybe we're buying an apartment. Maybe we're buying, you know, something further out. Maybe we're looking at rent vesting because if property is something that you're passionate about, I do still want you to be able to engage in that. It's just going to look a lot different to what it did historically. And I think that's okay, but we need that context so it's not just, oh my God, I can't believe my parents could do this and I can't. Well, the world Mm. is completely different now. Mm. I love the way you put it because I think sometimes it can feel so out of reach. You just like put the blinkers on, you know, and you just don't even think it's something you can think about, but how you are breaking it down and thinking, well, there are other entries, other entry points. You just need to think about it a little bit differently. So it's not the avocado toast as well. No, unfortunately. (laughs) And it's not even, I just got back from the US. It's not even the $15 Australian coffees that I was having to pay for. Like, are you joking with this exchange rate? Like that, even that is not going to save me. I did the compound Mm. interest on like $40 a week at brunch and realized that even over 10 years, I still can't afford the deposit for a house. So it's not (laughs) even the avocado toast. It's literally the economy that is screwing us all over. I'm so sorry to break it to you this way. Yeah. Oh my God. American coffees. Like I live in a studio, a loft studio in Venice and it's $4,500 US a month. That's wild to me. That's so wild to me because like exchange that to Australian and that's like what, nearly $7,000 a month Australian? Insane. For a place that has, it has one door to the bathroom. That's it. It's a completely doorless, legit studio. And it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. And I think a lot of people feel like, oh, but you get paid more in America. No. No, you like, don't. You don't. <laughs> I actually, yeah, it's it's not, not what you think. Anyway, okay, switching gears slightly because I do really want to talk to you about your pregnancy. This has been something very topical for me. But hearing you say earlier, you've got 30... You've got 30 employees currently. Yeah, just over. I've got 30 in Zella money or just over 30 in Zella money. And I have seven going on eight as of, you know, a couple of days in She's on the Money. That's incredible. I want to know if you felt like you had to choose one or the other, career or baby. Um, No. And I say no because... I have seen so many strong women go before me and I think I'm in a position where for the last few years I've been watching them on social media and being like, wow, like you can absolutely do this and that means that I can do this. But I did have to really think hard about my career. So I went from working like honestly psychotic hours. I think I told you before off air that like I've burnt out a number of times and that's not something to be proud of. I should have absolutely seen that coming and looked after myself more because it impacted my business and it impacted my life in a way that, you know, just wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. So I think when it came to, you know, push came to shove, my husband was like, when are we having babies? Cause he's older than I am and was, you know, super keen. He is the most like, I guess, fatherly figure you've ever met. Like I cannot wait to see him become a dad. And I've always thought that I've always just been a bit too scared to let it happen. I just was like, I have too many plates spinning. Like I was working 80, 90 hours a week and that's just not feasible for anyone's lifestyle. I think I sat back and said, well, this is great, right? I think we're all so proud of our careers, but 
when I am sitting on my front porch in a rocking chair, do I want to look back on my life and go, wow, I'm so glad I slayed it at work? Or do I want to look back on my life and go, wow, I really enjoyed life? Mm. And I think that that turning point happened six or eight months before I got married last year. And I just go, this isn't the life I want to live consistently. Like I'm so grateful for the patient husband I have and I'm so grateful for the family I have, but they all keep telling me to slow down. And I was looking at it going, no, 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 I've just got so much to achieve. And then when you zoom out, you go, I can still achieve that. It might just take a little bit longer, but how much more fun is the journey going to be if it's even more nourishing? Yeah, And I think you know, once I was able to do that, I did realize that my business had too many plates spinning and I decided to take a step back and I looked at it and I said, well, I adore she's on the money that can't go anywhere. How do I make that sustainable? And I knew that I needed to make a a few new hires and I guess take less profit out of that business. So I made that decision. And then I looked at, I had a mortgage broking business and a financial advice business and financial advice has changed significantly in the last few years. And it just it wasn't helping the greater good of what I was trying to create. And as much as I adored my clients, I just said, you know what, something's got to give. If you don't pick the plate that you're going to place on the ground, one's going to drop and it's going to crack and it's going to break and it's not going to be very sexy. So Mm -hmm. I decided to sell my financial advice practice and that all wrapped up in September, 2022 and disposed of that, I suppose. Like I still own the entity, but I don't have any more clients. I sold all of them and then started to work towards having a bit better work-life balance. And that work-life balance, I think, is so important to prioritize because I think so many times, especially as women like you and I, like we have our eyes on the prize, right? And like nothing's ever good enough in a way. Like you win an award or you, you know, get recognized for something and sometimes you don't even stop to blink. You just go, mm. yep, great, no worries. But like that's still not, like we're still not where I needed to be. Like yeah, and people would say, next. oh, congrats. Yeah, congrats on She's on the Money. It's the number one business podcast in the country. And I'll be like, yeah, but why not the world? Like, mm. what do you mean? I don't even have any American listeners. I can't be that good. And so it's all this dumb Mm. pressure that when you articulate it to other people sounds so stupid that you go, that's not actually what the world is about, is it? And, you know, I think following lots of people online and seeing how they have thrived being mums and also having their businesses, I go, it's not the 1950s. I don't need to separate my work and my life in this way. Like I feel so eternally grateful. I would say I work day to day closer to my She's on the Money team than I do my Zella team. And they are so excited for this pregnancy. Like they cannot wait. And, you know, we're all planning for the time that I'm going to have off. And I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anybody, but I'm planning minimal time off. But that's because I'm so passionate about my work. Mm. Like to me, that is one of my babies. And Mm. I think that there's this expectation on women that once you become pregnant, you need to step out of the workforce because that's the responsible thing to do. And I just go, that's not going to make me the best mom. Mm. Like I'm going to be a better mom if I can do all of those things. Yes. And, you know, I saw my mom work full time when I grew up. And Mm. I think that that's where a lot of my work ethic has come from. And I want that for my babies. And I think, you know, there's lots of this, I don't know if you're on the side of TikTok yet, Michelle, where it's just like all this parenting advice. 
like, gentle parenting and like stay-at-home mum blogs. And I'm like, I'm never going to be a stay-at-home mum. I'm never going to have that. People are, honestly, I'm already prepared for it. People are going to crucify me. I've been Googling what it costs to have a nanny and how I might find one because I look at it and I go, all right, well, I would love that work-life balance. I would love to spend as much time with my kids as possible. And I hope that you know, once I become a mum, that time I can be incredibly present. Mm. But to be present, I have to work hard on the flip side because to own a business and be a mum is a privilege. And I think that I look at it and I just go, I don't know how I'm going to make it work, but thousands of women have gone before me. And if they can do it, I can do it too. Yeah. I love how deeply you've thought about this because it is a bit of a similar journey to myself. Like I really had to unpack why have I felt like it had to be one or the other. And your point about we've historically seen women, you know, have babies and exit the workforce. I think that adds to the pressure of, can I do this? But then to your point, you take a step back and you realize, well, there are 2 billion mothers in the world. Like yeah. there's many working mothers out there. You can you can do the same. But I think it, it does stem from the pressures we put on ourselves and how career focused we are and your career becoming your identity. You wonder, I guess, if you can maintain it and it is so unknown how it will change you and your life and you don't know what kind of baby you're going oh, to no, have. No, it could absolutely ruin my life. Like, let's be <laughs> aspirational. Like, it's, but I also know that I think, I think I have this deep belief that everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And I look back on all of the terrible things that I've been through and like, I just go, you know what, I'm a better person because of that. And I think I'm going to be a better person having become a mum. Yeah. Um, And I think that I'm excited for that, but I also look at it and I go, I know I've actively had to shut out a lot of opinions because I just can't handle them. Right. Like I, was with a group of people and I won't say when, where or how, but um, they were basically crucifying daycare. They were like, I would never send my kid to daycare. I hate that idea. I don't want somebody else looking after my kids. Mm. And I just remember looking at it and going, wow, like I've never seen it that way. I love the idea of daycare above and beyond the fact that I'm a working mum. I love the idea that my tiny little human is going to go and make tiny other human friends yeah, and, you know, learn some responsibility and learn some independence and learn that there are consequences to their actions. And I would love to then come home and pick them up from daycare and be like, what did you do today? Tell me about your job. You know, you've got this job to be a kid and you've got this job to go to daycare and mum's got this job to go to work and I'll tell you about my day and you tell me about yours. And to me, it's never been a bad thing, but I think it's about actively going, what type of parent do I want to be? And when people crucify that, I guess, type of parent, not taking it personally because like I'm not even a mum yet like I have not had this baby but the amount of pressure and the amount of advice that I'm getting of people being like oh don't put your baby in daycare before this time or make sure you do this or make sure you do that I'm just like what like Mm. can't we just see what type of baby this baby is and go from there and like work out what's best for them and isn't it a privilege to be in the position where I can make that decision I said this to you off air as well, but I just think it's so amazing to see a variety of different ways to do it. And for me, you know, being, I'm just coming out of my first trimester and seeing you, how many weeks are you? I'm 22. Yeah. So seeing you 22 weeks pregnant and flying from Australia to New York and just doing your work trip, 
I loved seeing that because I'm like, I'm going to have to do that too. She's doing it. I can do it. And I think it's Oh, you can good. absolutely do it. You might need an extra nap or two here and there. <laughs> but like I keep saying to my team because they're quite worried. They've never like none of my team in She's on the Money Mums. And they're like, oh, don't do that. Don't do this. I'm like, I'm pregnant, not dead. Women go through this all the time. Like I think it was you who posted it the other day. Like women can give birth in a field and then be back working the same day. I'm like, pretty sure I can get on a flight and watch movies for 14 hours. I might be a little bit uncomfortable, but I've got stuff to do. I've got a business to grow. I like being who I am and I'm not going to turn that off because I'm pregnant. I'm not a precious pregnant person, you could say. Yeah. I honestly, it was my mum who was like, she said to me, pregnancy isn't an illness. Women give birth in fields and work that afternoon. And her saying it's not an illness really stuck with me. I'm like, oh my God, you're right. Like, I'm fine. I can do this. Like, I've got two brains right now, Michelle. Like, <laughs> oh I've got my two God. brains. And if I'm having a boy, because we don't know the gender, if I'm have, if I'm a boy, man, I've just grown some balls. How good's that? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm finding out the gender of mine as soon as I get back to L.A. I could not, like, I'm like, how can you keep it a surprise? You have strength. I don't know if it's strength or just delusion, but... <laughs> I just have this idea like in my head and I'm not trying to convince you to change your way, but like (laughs) in my head, I just have this idea that I'm having a newborn so I can prepare for that fully. That's fine. I've never been a gendered kind of person when it comes to planning. Like my husband's already bought all of this dinosaur gear for it because like I was like, oh, we don't know the gender. And he just looked at me deadpan and was like, Victoria, everybody looks good in dinosaurs. And I was like, (laughs) sir, you are not wrong. (laughs) You are not wrong. Um, but I just have this idea that, you know, if I have to go through birth, there has to be something magical about it. Mm. And I cannot wait for that moment of being told like, oh, you have a son or you have a daughter in the delivery room. And a part of our birth plan is that nobody else is going to be allowed to announce it, but my husband will tell me or show me and we'll find out together. And I just think that that's yeah, to me, something that I'm so looking forward to that goes above and beyond wanting to know right now. And I go, yeah, oh, no, I don't want to know. I want to wait. I want to wait for that moment. I want to wait. But like a lot of people are very confused because I'm one of the most controlling people that you'll ever meet. So <laughs> they're kind of like, but Victoria, that's not very you to not want to know a very significant detail. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, having grown up around babies and having beautiful nieces and nephews, I'm kind of like, I don't care about the gender. I could not yeah. care less. That so, will be a yeah. beautiful moment. It'll um, be fun. You're like, but I'm not waiting yeah, for that I'm, shit. I'm still not, but that will be beautiful. <laughs> uh, um, okay, this has been amazing. I am going to head into our last question. So we have a little segment that we do, which is we end every episode with a spicy question. This isn't like that spicy, to be honest. No, it's more well, just that's curious. A bit disappointing. <laughs> I could go spicy, but I ask everyone the same question. And Georgia and my team was like, you need to stop asking that question. Why? <laughs> okay, I'm asking Why? you it. Why okay. fix it if it's not broken? Yeah, I just am always curious. Have you ever had sex in public? I mean, not in front of other people. In a public like, place? Oh, yeah, who hasn't? Like, come on. Okay, where was it? Who? Ha- oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> this is not good. 
what time? <laughs> um, I mean, there's been a few. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I feel so uncomfortable answering this, even though if we were at brunch, I'd be like, "Oh, I was here and I did this and I did that." Um, I mean, awful, awful, awful. Uh, the bathrooms at Naked for Satan in in Fitzroy was probably the worst. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. That is, I feel like that's a true little, were you 18, 19? I was a bit older than that. I should have known better. (laughs) 25? I should have, yeah, about that. I should have known better. (laughs) Okay. Amazing. And it wasn't even someone, it wasn't even someone I met that day. Like we, we were in a relationship at that point. I was like, you didn't even need to do that. You could have just gone home and been an adult about this, but did you know? (laughs) Oh my God. Amazing. Okay. That's perfect. Love it. All right. You're welcome. But anyone wanting to find you online, where can they find you? Not at Naked for Satan. We'll not be connected <laughs> there ever again. Um, but you can find me at She's on the Money AUS, which is my business page, um, or Victoria underscore Divine, which is where I share, I guess, more of those intimate details about my life. Like I'm pretty rogue. I would say there's no real <laughs> content strategy there. It's just whatever I'm feeling in the moment. Or you can look up our podcast, She's on the Money, on any podcasting platform you desire, my friends. Love that. Thank you so much for joining us on Try Babies. Thank you for having me. Woohoo! Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. A quick ask if you enjoyed listening, it would mean the world if you could jump on Spotify or Apple and review the podcast. Five stars only, please. We need to build that army so we can read what you loved and what you want to hear more of. We're so grateful to have such an incredible community of empowered, motivated and confident women supporting each other here to go after their dreams. That's what we've needed most throughout our journey. You can subscribe so you don't miss our episodes or head over to our Try Babies podcast Facebook group and Try Babies Insta where we can connect with you more and ask us questions that you want answered in the show. See you on the next episode of Try Babies.